Matthew 19, 13 and following. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another reading of uh, your sacred word as recorded in Matthew. And we thank you, Lord, for all the things that you're teaching us, for the ways that Lord, you're blessing us and enriching our lives through this rich teaching of your word. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you'd be pleased to continue to bless us to these ends. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us and not only teach us that we might have a cognizant uh, understanding of these things, but that, Lord, you, you would shape and mold us by the truths that are uh, in your word. Make us more like Jesus, uh, even now in this very hour. To these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. What could be more important uh, than entering into eternal life? What could possibly be more important than that? I mean, uh, we make everything more important than that. But I think in these kind of moments when we stand back and we think about it, what could possibly be more important than entering into eternal life? That's really what our text is about this morning, is uh, entering into eternal life. That's the question that gets asked in the very heart of the text, isn't it? What must I do that I may have eternal life? And our text this morning is really rich with important theological truths, and these truths are not secondary truths. We have truths in the, in, in the church and, and truths in the Bible that we might call secondary or tertiary or whatever you want to put it. We might say they're not of primary importance, they're of secondary importance. And by that, we don't mean that there are some truths that aren't important. What we mean by this distinction are 
There are some truths that if we err on those truths, it's the difference between life or death. That's what we mean by that. Uh, all truth is God's truth, and it's all equally important. But in terms of our salvation, uh, there are principles and truths that if we err on those, uh, it, it can be the matter of entering, entering eternal life or not entering uh, eternal life. And the truths that we have here uh, this morning before us are of first importance, of primary importance. They answer the question, how do we enter into uh, eternal life. Now, what I would like to do this morning is just jump right into these, uh, these truths and, and briefly discuss each one of them. And the first thing that, uh, that we see from our text is that if we're going to enter into eternal life, we must come with a childlike trust. If you look at verse 13 with me, uh, Matthew tells us, Then children were brought to Jesus that He might lay His hands on them and pray. Uh, notice the word then. Uh, that word is telling us that these things are taking place within the context uh, of what we've been studying over the last few weeks. Namely, Jesus comes down from Galilee and enters into the region of Judea, and he begins a healing ministry there. Large crowds are following him, and uh, it's there where the Pharisees try to uh, trip him up. We spent a couple of weeks on there. They throw a hotbed question at him. Um, it's in this event, it's, it's uh, within the context of this healing ministry uh, that children are being brought to Jesus. And I presume that it uh, is the parents of the children that are, uh, that are uh, bringing these children, these little ones, to Jesus. Uh, after all, who, who wouldn't want their children to be blessed by Jesus? Uh, imagine Jesus being in Chester. Who wouldn't want to take their kids to Jesus and have His blessing uh, upon them? Uh, we're told that uh, while these um, folks are doing this, the disciples begin to rebuke what I would assume to be the parents um, of the children. And uh, uh, Jesus uh, speaks up in verse 14. He says, leave these little children to come to me. Uh, don't hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom uh, of heaven. Jesus is here redressing an old lesson that we had way back in Matthew 18. Uh, you remember, it was kind of, in some respects, a little bit of a humorous story. The disciples were kind of arguing about who would be the greatest. Do you remember that? And uh, uh, Jesus takes a little child amongst himself, and he says, listen, unless you, um, unless you come like this little child, you can't even enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you remember that context? Uh, the, the lesson is the same. Uh, the point is, to come to Jesus to enter life, we must come in a childlike trust. We must come, uh, we might say, in a, in a childlike faith, in, in, a, uh, 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 in a humility, if you will, uh, in the humility uh, of a child. And it's here where uh, some people will uh, speak up and say, you know, preach it, Pastor. That's right. We, we need to come as children. Uh, out with all of that uh, theological nonsense. Just give me Jesus and give me that childlike faith and uh, uh, all will be well. And in their um, defense, sometimes uh, what they're criticizing by theology is that theology that's, that's often discussed clear up here in the abstract and it's never brought down the ladder of abstraction uh, into our lives. If we're going to discuss theology, if I'm going to discuss theology 
on the Lord's Day or on a Wednesday night for that matter, uh, then it needs, to be, it needs to make some point in contact in, in our lives. Uh, too often is the case, we talk about theology, but we don't make any application of that theology. We talk about theology, but okay, wh what does that do for us? Uh, all of our theological discussions should lead us to see God in a new light or lead us to adore Him in a, in a new fashion. It should shape and mold us somehow. It, it needs to make contact. Uh, we, we don't want to embrace this, uh, this voice that's so ready to say uh, out with all of the theology because if we do that, what's eventually going to happen is we're not going to come to Jesus in childlike faith. Uh, we're going to come to Jesus in childishness. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not calling us to be immature. Uh, he's, calling, he's calling us to be humble. Uh, the uh, story that we have next here, the story of the rich young man, uh, contains a number of rich theological truths that, that absolutely demand our consideration. And again, I would say uh, that these things are primary. Uh, these aren't secondary matters. So the first thing we see is that we have to come to Jesus in a childlike humility, but we must secondly realize that as we come to Jesus, we don't have anything to offer. We have nothing to offer. When I was in seminary, one of the courses that I was required to take was a battery of courses known as the systematics. Um, there are a number of different classes that are in those courses, and and one of the courses is called the Doctrine of Man. Uh, and the Doctrine of Man, basically what it, what it discusses, it discusses who we are before the face of God. You know, what, our psalm asks, what is man? You know, uh, Psalm 8 asks, what is man? Psalm 144 probably borrows from Psalm 8 and asking, you know, who are we? You know, who are we that, that the Lord should be so good to us? Uh, the doctrine of man investigates that. Uh, who are we? Uh, who were we before the fall of humanity into sin? And what effects has the fall of humanity uh, had on us? Uh, in other words, not only who are we, uh, but what are we? Uh, we're told in verse 16 that a man come up to Jesus. Uh, we know him as the rich young man, or sometimes the rich young ruler, he is called. And he asks this question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but uh, Jesus' initial response to this had, uh, early on when I was first reading the Gospels often confused me. Uh, notice what Jesus says. He, he, he asks, why do you... Why do you ask me about what is good? Doesn't that seem like an, an odd response coming from the one who, the only one who is good? Why do you ask me what is good? I, I think Mark's account of this story and Luke's account of this story is even more confusing uh, because uh, both Mark and Luke say, you know, the young man comes up to Jesus and says, you know, good teacher, tell me what must I do to have eternal life? And and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Uh, there's no one good uh, but God. Now, why in the world would Jesus respond that way? Well, the reason's really easy to see once we understand something about the rich young man. 
You see, the rich young man didn't pass his Doctrine of Man course. Um, he simply didn't pass that course. And he probably didn't pass that course because his, his instructors probably didn't pass that course either. If we look at the question that he asks, uh, he is assuming that there is some good deed uh, that we are capable of doing that would put God in a position where He would give to us eternal life. Can you see that from the question that's being asked? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What's assumed with that question? There's something that I can do so that I can have eternal life. That's the assumption. You just need to give me the instruction. Here I am, waiting, ready to go. Well, um, this is against the whole thrust of Scripture in regards to the doctrine of man. For instance, um, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. You've, you've heard me quote these verses many times before. The Apostle Paul is gathering all these statements out of the Old Testament. And this is what he says. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's some list of attributes, isn't it? Who is it describing? Is it describing that other guy? It's describing you and it's describing me. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Look at, listen to verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Who's the psalmist speaking of? The, the criminal sector of society? That amidst all the criminals, there's not one that does good? Um, no, the psalmist is speaking to all of us. Job 15, verse 14, What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is just a few of the verses as you, as you uh, go through the Bible and you look at all these verses, they're just over and over and over again. <coughs> Excuse me. And of course, this is what we do in the Doctrine of Man class. A Doctrine of Man, uh, what it basically does is it looks, it looks at all of the verses that speak about our condition, puts them all together so that we can arrive at a, a proper theology of not only who we are, but what we are. Now see, clearly this man didn't understand that. Very clearly, this man must have thought, I'm, he was a ruler, probably a synagogue ruler, he would have been familiar with these verses, but he must have always thought they applied to someone else. Yeah, we could almost uh, hear that, uh, uh, that old saying, Lord, I thank you that you haven't made me like all those other guys. You know, this stuff must all apply to, to, to those guys out there. It don't, apply, it don't apply to me. 
<clears throat> now, what's kind of neat here is uh, Jesus' response to the young man. Uh, young man asks Jesus, what must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. I think the way the, the, the young man answers this question is kind of funny. Um, how's he respond? <laughs> he says, which ones? You know, Jesus is telling him to keep the commandments. Uh, okay, uh, just which commandments do you have in mind? Does it matter? <laughs> if we've broken one of them, uh, then we've, we've, we've fallen. We've already blown it. I can't help but to wonder if there wasn't a grin on Christ's face whenever he heard the which ones. Uh, I don't know if there was, if there wasn't. There would have been, there's a grin on my face. Uh, um, Jesus answers in verse 18 and 19. He, he says, well, how about these? You, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. If Jesus was grinning whenever the young man said which ones, it's, it, he certainly wasn't grinning when the young man responds. If you look at verse 20, notice how the man responds. He says, all these I have kept. All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? This is a very sad state of affairs right here. See, this goes back again to the doctrine of man. You want to see how important the doctrine of man is. This man has a very high view of himself and a very low view of the law. Whereas the doctrine of man, when rightly understood, reverses these things. We begin to see, we begin to have a very high view of the law and a very low view of our ability to keep that law. And doesn't common experience teach that anyway? It's pretty hard to be good, isn't it? Has anybody ever tried to be good? I mean, real good, like perfect? It's pretty hard to do. Well, now we clearly understand why Jesus seems to be making strange remarks. Why would Jesus say, uh, why would Jesus say to this young man, why do you call me good? That's because this young man only sees in Jesus what he sees in others. Let me put it another way. This young man, when he looks at Jesus, he just sees a man, a good man, a good moral man. He doesn't see God in the flesh. He sees a good teacher. He needs him to be a good teacher so that he can say, look, there's a good teacher. If there's a good teacher, I can be just like him. He's a good man, I'm a good man, we're all good men. But when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus is meeting this man right where he is. And in essence, what he is saying is saying, why do you go around calling men good? The assumption on Jesus' part is, you, you just see me as a man, so why would you say that I'm good? There's no one who's good except for God. He's trying to teach this man that he is not good either, is what he's trying to say. Now it makes sense why Jesus would, would answer this way. So Jesus goes about this again only from, a, I think, a much more convicting angle in verses 21 and 22. 
He says, listen, I'll tell you, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything that you have and take the proceeds from that sale, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why was he sorry? It's because he had a lot of stuff. And he loved his stuff. And that should have showed him that he was an idolater. And an adulterer. And a coveter. The whole system of commandments comes toppling down, doesn't it? Shall I know there are gods before me? The whole thing comes falling down. Which leads to the next important truth we have. We, where have we been so far? We've got to come in a childlike humility if we want to enter the, into life. We can't come as a, a proud man or a proud woman. We've got to come in a childlike humility. We must realize we don't have anything to offer. We don't have anything to offer our Lord. And secondly, we've got, or thirdly rather, we've got to realize that salvation is all of grace. Um, you know, when this young man asks this question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? His question reveals one of the hardest theological assumptions that we have, I think, to get over. I think this is one of the toughest things we have to get over. And this is another really important theological truth. We not only need a good doctrine of man, we need a good doctrine of salvation. Doctrine of man teaches us that we're incapable of doing anything good. That's what all those verses said. There's no one who does good. Doctrine of, of, of salvation here teaches us that there's nothing that we can do uh, to earn eternal life. Notice that question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? I think this is one of the hardest things for us to get over because our theology often sounds like the Christmas song, you know. You, you better not, how's it go? You better not shout, you better not pout. How's that go? I forget. Yeah, you better not shout, you better not cry. You better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Um, that's the working theology of us as we come out of the box. It seems to us that if we're really good, then we'll get to go to heaven. If we're, if, but if we're really bad, we're not going to get to go to heaven. That seems to make sense to us, doesn't it? And it's not that there's no truth to that. Uh, there's 100% truth to that, uh, only with this fastened to it. If you're perfectly good, then you can go to heaven. But unless you're perfectly good in thought, word, or deed, then you've blown it. Well, we've all blown it, haven't we? You see, this, this, this fellow doesn't understand this. He just simply doesn't understand this. He believes that he is keeping the law. He believes that he has kept it completely. Uh, the Gettys, in fact, the song I'm working on right now for the next coffee hours, a song by the Gettys called Simple Living, and it's kind of like this Irish jig. I love this song. But it, 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 it's, it's taken practically right out of our text. It says, a rich, young, a rich young man came to ask of Christ, good teacher, will you tell me, what must I do for eternal life? I've kept your laws completely. <laughs> Sell all you have, give to the poor, then heaven's treasure shall be yours. How hard for those who are rich on earth to gain the wealth of heaven. 
Um, I, I love this song. It's taken right out of the text. It continues in the next line. Now Jesus sat by the offering gate as people brought their money. The rich they filled the collection plate. The widow gave a penny. Now she's outgiven all the rest. Her gift was all that she possessed. And listen to this last two lines. Not what you give, but what you keep is what the, the king is counting. Not what you give, but what you keep is what the king is counting. That's classic. The last line, Oh, teach me, Lord, to walk this road, the road of simple living, to be content with what I own and generous in giving. And when I cling to what I have, please rest it quickly from my grasp. I'd rather lose all things of earth to gain the things of heaven. That's the complete opposite of our rich young man here, isn't it? He's walking away, and he's walking away quite sad. So we see here that these theological truths that we're talking about here, uh, namely the doctrine of man, understanding ourselves, and the doctrine of salvation, they're, they're not things that, that um, we can say, okay, out with. Um, if we don't understand who we truly are before the face of a God, then how are we going to understand what we need? I think too often is the case that perhaps most of us have probably heard the good news of Jesus before we, had the, we heard the bad news. Um, do you know what I mean by that? Too often we're very energetic about sharing the good news of the gospel when we haven't taken time to share the bad news. The bad news is that if we don't do anything, uh, the bad news is... Uh, no matter how nice we might be, no matter how wonderful we might be, measured by uh, human standards, we are not headed for heaven. We're not headed there. That's not where we're going to go. Uh, that's the bad news. The bad news is that in and of ourselves, we are so uh, fractured as the result of sin and rebellion that unless God does something, we're not going to heaven. That's the bad news. And without the bad news, the good news doesn't really make any sense. Does it? We tell people that they need a Savior. You need Jesus. I need Jesus for what? We have to take time to, to share the bad news. We need a Savior because on the current trek you're on right now, you're, you're headed, I mean, this is as good as it's ever going to get. It's never going to get any better than this. You know, your concerns right now might be health care, it might be food on the table, it might be, you know, getting another car, it might, might could be any kind of other things. But you know something? This is as good as it's ever going to get. That's where the doctrine of man is so important. There's no one who does good, not even one. And a doctrine of salvation, there, there's nothing that we can do. There are no good deeds that we can do that would put us in a position where we could have eternal life. Let's start putting all this together. If we compare verses 13 and 15 with the story of the rich young man, we find two different attitudes here. Notice how the children, you know, if you go back to verse 13, 14, and 15, notice how the children are coming to Jesus. Parents are bringing the children to Jesus, and they're not questioning Jesus. They're not laying traps for Jesus. 
They're not arguing about how great they are. They're coming to Jesus and they're happy to be blessed. And look at the attitude of the rich young man. Lord, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I'll keep all those commandments. I've done this completely. What, what do I still lack? Well, go get rid of all your goodies and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. That, by the way, is not an indictment that if we're going to go to heaven, we need to get rid of all our stuff. Sometimes it's been taken as that, you know. Okay, if we're going to go to heaven, we need to sell everything we got, give it to the poor, go follow Jesus. No, Jesus is talking to a specific individual who had a specific problem. But, <laughs> but, uh, it's possible that uh, we share in that problem. The reason I say that is because um, when we think of rich people, I think oftentimes we think of millionaires, billionaires, you know. Um, some people think that, okay, because they might be multi-millionaires, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 million dollars to their name, but they don't consider themselves rich because they're looking at billionaires. Um, it's unlikely that any of us have a million dollars in liquid assets laying around. It's probably unlikely that many of us have $100,000 in liquid assets laying around. It's probably an accurate statement that few of us have $10,000 laying around. Uh, we might not even have five. But by the world's standards, we are all very rich. Everyone in this room is. And I think, I really believe with all my heart that in this context, everyone in this room is rich. I say this because I don't want us to read about this rich young man and think this is some millionaire running around. I say this because I, I don't think there's any of us in this room that go hungry. There's something in our home to eat. I don't think that we go cold very often. I don't think that we go without shelter. We drive cars. Our homes have air conditioning. Probably most of our homes do at least have some kind of window unit or something. And we enjoy food that previously was only enjoyed by royalty in previous generations. I think an easy, an easy argument can be made that we're, we're all very rich. And it is hard to get rid of stuff, isn't it? I think this is one of the reasons why uh, so few people in our culture are interested in Jesus. I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it is one of the reasons. We, we sometimes are happy to bring Jesus along like an appendix, you know, an appendix at the end of a book. Um, we, can, we can bring Jesus into our lives and we can kind of have Jesus over here, but Jesus is not really, he's not really at the center of it all. I think we always need to ask ourselves the question, is my life orbiting around Christ 
Or is my life orbiting around my desires? Now, if your desire is for Christ, that's fine. But don't misunderstand me. Uh, I might put it another way. Is, is our lives really orbiting around Christ? Or are they orbiting around what's over here or what's over there? Or, you know, our thing that we got going on over here or our thing that we got going on over there. Uh, the acquisition of, a, of another car or home or uh, anything could be put in that list. All of our interests are different. Uh, for me, it could be a guitar or something. Um, we have things that we are excited about. And the question that we should ask is, is our lives orbiting around Christ? So I, I really, as I read the Bible, as I study the Bible, I really don't think that Jesus saves people who aren't orbiting around him. And it goes back to the question that I started with, doesn't it? What could be more important than eternal life? And that's what I like so much about Gettys. I think they're on target here. They say, oh, teach me, Lord, to walk this road, the road of simple living, to be content with what I own and generous in giving. And when I cling to what I have, please rest it quickly from my grasp. I'd rather lose all the things of earth to gain the things of heaven. I think that captures it. That by God's grace that we could be so um, excited. Um, so caught up in Christ that Christ would be our all in all. We sing songs like that sometimes. Is that where our hearts are? And that leads me to conclude really with what I call the reversal. I think verses 28 through 30 have a, a somewhat of a reversal to them. I just want to say a couple very brief things about them uh, because when we study the, the parable in chapter 20 of the labors in the vineyard, I think these things become more clear. But Jesus says, in, He's responding in verses 28 to 30 to uh, a question that Jesus, or a question that Peter asks to Jesus. You know, Peter, Peter and the disciples, they're, they're responding to this, you know. The, uh, the rich young ruler is going away sad. He's going away sad because he has all these goodies. And uh, he's not going to be able to take those goodies with him. And that's making him quite sad. And then Jesus makes the comment. He says, listen, uh, it'll be harder for a rich man to, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter's scratching his head. And one of the reasons Peter is scratching his head is because they thought a lot differently than we do about wealth. So we're very proud in our culture. When we get wealthy in our culture, we think it's all because of us. We think we're the ones that did it. We think we're the ones that accomplished it. Look at me. I'm a real great businessman, blah, blah, blah. But when the fact of the matter is there's always a lot of providence involved when somebody gets rich. You have to be at the right place at the right time with the right skill set at the right time to make the right decisions at the right time. Nobody does that in and of themselves. Hannah says in her prayer that it's the Lord who makes rich, it's the Lord who makes poor. Peter understood that. And here's this rich guy, and that rich guy would have been someone who, that culture would have said, wow, here's someone who's truly blessed of God. Here's someone who's truly blessed. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's harder for a rich man to... 
harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Peter, <laughs> Peter says, whoa, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible. That goes back to our doctrine of man again, doesn't it? With man it's impossible. But with God it is possible. Then Peter says, well, we've left everything to follow you. What, what will we have? And Jesus says, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Then He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the reversal I'm talking about. Many who are first will be last and last will be first. This, this I think is going to become clearer next week when we look at the parable. But let me just say this in closing. Things in the next world aren't like things are in this world. We need to be prepared for that now so that we don't get caught up in it all. I mean, there's lots of people that seem to be doing great. And by human standards, they are doing great. Uh, they've got the cars, they've got the houses, they've got all of the stuff and all of the goodies. Everything seems to be going well. Their kids are doing good, et cetera, et cetera. But Christ is not at the center. Christ is not at the center. And we've got to learn to see that for what that really is. If Christ is not at the center, it don't matter how many cars you've got in the driveway. It doesn't matter how good things are going with your career. It doesn't matter how things are going with, I won't say it doesn't matter how things are going with your family. That's not really true. But if Christ is not at the center of your life, then really where are you? Where are we if Christ is not at the center? Jesus did not come to be an appendix in our lives. He came to be the center of our lives. How do we enter into it? Just come to Him in a childlike, childlike faith. We understand we don't have nothing to offer Him. There's nothing that we can do to earn eternal life. We simply come to Him and receive the life that He is offering. That's how we enter eternal life. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I pray for the grace that, Lord, You would be the center of our lives. O oh Lord, too often is the case we, we find ourselves drifting to the left or to the right. We find ourselves, O oh Lord, where something else has occupied that place. O oh Lord, we pray for the grace to truly become the very center, the very focal point, the very epicenter of our lives, O oh Lord. Teach us thoroughly, O oh Lord, that we have nothing to offer You. Teach us thoroughly, Lord, that we cannot earn salvation. Humble us by these two truths that we may come in a childlike faith, O oh Lord, and be the center of our of our lives and hearts, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.